Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 12. Sue and I have been car shopping this week. Went out last Monday. She had the day off because of President's Day, and I always have Monday off. So we, we went down to Burlington, where there's a lot of car dealerships all kind of congregated, you know. And, and uh, first place we stopped was uh, at the outlet mall. Somebody was selling cars there from another dealership, and so there was one there like I'm interested in, and we looked it over, and you know, as soon as we got out of the car, of course, uh, zoom, you know, the uh, car dealer, the car salesman with his magnetic, her magnetic personality was there and led us around and chatted us up, and uh, we looked and said, thank you very much, and went down the way and looked, and looked two or three, and we said, oh, let's go back and drive that first car. So we went back. <laughs> Yeah, you know how this goes. So uh, we went back and we drove it. And it was decent. It had a couple little problems. You know, as a used cars, of course, none of them was going to be perfect. But so they said, well, would you like to see what we can do? You know, <laughs> well, not really. <laughs> but yeah, you know, we, you know, it's been a while since we bought a car. So we, you know, let's go talk about it and so we went in, and, and so immediately we were passed up the chain to somebody who's, you know, able to talk numbers, I guess. And uh, so we're talking, and, you know, kind of go, kind of, you know, kind of, you know, kind of getting our, getting our stance there. And uh, after a while, he says, well, there is some urgency here, because this is a sale. And I looked at him, and I said, there's no urgency here. There might be urgency for you. <laughs> and, uh, well, yeah, come to find out the urgency is every car he moves off the lot that day, he's getting 100 bucks stuck in his pocket straight up. He told me that. I thought, is that supposed to motivate me? You've got kids at home, and I'm supposed to help feed your kids? Is that the deal? I mean, so I said, no, there's no, there's no urgency for me here. I'm going to be very patient about this thing. As we come to John chapter 12, we're going to hear Jesus say, there's some urgency here. He doesn't use that word, but he's going to tell us some things and do some things that for those people to whom he was talking to, it very definitely should have communicated, need to get moving on this, on this issue of salvation. And it also tells that to us as well today. So let's read from John chapter 12, verse 20. Please follow as I read. Starting in John 12, verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. 
Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but it came for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. This is the end of the public ministry of Jesus. Now if you read the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see some other things that he did during this time, but when this point is hit, from then on, he's done talking to the public and he talks to the disciples. He talks to the men that we will call the apostles in time. He finished this message and he went away. Boom, I'm done. To me, when Jesus quits talking, that means there's some urgency. And I would just like us to see, first of all, that he said this, your belief in me is urgent because I am the source of eternal life. Look with me again at verse 20. Now, there were certain Greeks who came up to worship. They came to Philip. Philip was one of the apostles who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. They asked him, saying, we want to see Jesus. Philip came to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Now, if you can imagine this scenario, Jesus is in the temple area teaching. And Gentiles, non-Jews, which these Greeks would have been, could not come in. If it was today, and I was in the place of Jesus here teaching, they'd be out on the street, maybe with a loudspeaker, and they would not be allowed to come in because it was the Jewish temple. There was an area outside where they could be, but they couldn't come in. And so they had to catch these guys as they went back and forth and said, hey, hey, we want to talk to Jesus. And what would have had to happen is Jesus would have had to come out to talk to them. And so they found a guy with a Greek name, Philip, and said, hey, you know, we're Greeks. Can you get Jesus to come talk to us? And, and, uh, and these Greeks were, the one, were of some of those who come to worship at the feast. In other words, they came to the Passover feast to worship God. They weren't just some guys in Jerusalem on business. They were people there to worship God. So they were probably, as the term was in those days, God-fearers, but they were not proselytes to Judaism. And they're, they're really inquirers, they're seekers. They say, we want to talk to Jesus. Now, what does Jesus say when Philip and Andrew come and say, hey, there's some Greek guys that want to talk to you? Look what he says in verse 23. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He doesn't answer the Greeks. Except with this phrase that I think seems akin to a spiritual alarm clock. Something in what they said, or just the fact that they talked to him, or something in the overall scenario of what's going on, 
ticked something in Jesus' brain and he said, it's over. My earthly ministry of teaching the truth is done. The hour has come now. Now I'm moving on to the final glorification that God has for me. You see, the Gospel of John is not a historical narrative. A narrative is when you tell the story, you would say, you know, if I was telling the story of Raul and Stephanie, I'd say, well, Stephanie moved to Los Angeles, and Raul, and I'd have this whole series of things, and I would tell it in chronological order. That's a historical narrative. That's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke are. Now, they're not all the same length. They don't all have all of the same events, but essentially they're historical narratives. But John is a theological discourse. John starts off with Christ in eternity past. And he says, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, as to his nature, God. And he, and he goes on and talks about the person of Christ. John only includes a limited number of the things that Jesus did and said up to this point. Because he's giving a theological discussion of who Christ was and what he did. And, and so he's the one who records this little episode. And, and so something in this, in fact, what I would take it, the Greeks, the importance of the Greeks was that John went, hey, when those Greeks came, Jesus said this. And, and I almost see the Greeks as being inconsequential, but God doesn't do things quite that way. And so I think we'll see in a little bit maybe their significance. But the first significance is this. John said, when those Greeks came, this is what Jesus said. And so we understand that John's gospel is written according to this theme. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So that is the organizing principle of this book. And here, when we see a question sort of unanswered, this principle helps us to say, now, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is that God caused these Greeks to come, and somehow Jesus says, boom, it's time for me to be crucified. Now is the hour. In this question from the Greeks, or in this approach from the Greeks, though, there is an inferred question that's answered. Why did anybody come and talk to Jesus? All the people who came and talked to Jesus were after the same thing. They were trying to find out who he was and what he was about. Even those who hated him, like the Pharisees, were trying to get him to prove who he was and what he was about. I see in this approach from the Greeks something similar to what came from a, a fellow named Nicodemus. Um, and Nicodemus, of course, occurs to us in John chapter 3. But um, the reason that these folks could not come and talk to him directly or felt like they couldn't is from something Jesus had said. He said to the twelve, Do not go to the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so if I would imagine, what were the Greeks coming to ask I would imagine that as God-fearing Greeks, they were coming to say, is this just going to be for Jews? Or can Greeks participate in what you're talking about as well? 
And obviously that question is not written, but they came for some reason to talk to him. And so how does he answer this question? He answers it by the phrase, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And he answers it by the rest of this discourse down to verse 27 at least. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. It's a little bit obscure to us, especially if we haven't studied the Bible a lot. We think, what's he talking about, glorified? This phrase is a little obscure, but the next words tell us plainly what he's talking about. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He's using the the illustration of something very common to them, which is you take a seed or a piece of grain, you plant it in the ground, one piece goes in, and a whole bunch of pieces are the result. The head on the grain comes up. Jesus said, here's the answer to your questions, fellas. I'm going to be glorified. Interpret that. I'm going to be planted in the ground, and I'm going to bring much fruit. He uses this common illustration The glorifying of Christ, as the scripture reveals, as John reveals and others, involves several things which Christ saw as a package. It involved his triumph over sin and death by satisfying God's demand to punish sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, they deserved to die, and God graciously forbear to punish them He said, I'm going to allow my son to come someday and die on the cross, and I will punish him for your sin. Christ knew that this was going to happen, and he knew that he would make salvation available to mankind by paying God's penalty against sin. He knew that he would triumph over Satan. We'll see that a little bit later in the text. And he knew that he would be exalted by the Father to the right hand of God's throne. And so Christ speaks of all of these things. You know, we would tend to break it down into little pieces, but he looks at the whole thing as as part of being glorified. In Hebrews, it's written this way. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. That's a summary of the life and ministry of Christ right there. He was... And then he was made lower than the angels. That is, he took on a human body and walked in a human existence. And then he tasted death. That is, he died and was raised again for everyone. And God has crowned him with glory because of it. That's a summary of the glorification of Christ. Isaiah 53 does a similar thing. Yet it pleased the Lord, it pleased Jehovah God to bruise him, Christ. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul, he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify or make many righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. 
God saw the sacrifice of Christ and said it is a great thing and he should be exalted to the highest level because of that. So Christ speaks of his death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation all in one phrase saying it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. What he is telling us, what he is telling the Greeks, even though they didn't get a chance to ask their question in person, is this. The hour has come that I'm going to provide salvation. Your belief in me is urgent because I am the only one who can provide salvation. This last week I was at a, at a seminar uh, dealing with the most, some of the most heinous crime that's done, which is uh, sexual abuse against children. And I told this to my Sunday school class, but it bears repeating to you because it has something to do with our text here. When the psychologist, who is a recognized national expert on this, and seemed like, to my opinion, a good-thinking woman in general, she said, why do these people do this? And all of the usual ideas were bantered about, and at the end of it she said, we don't know. No satisfactory answer as to why someone would abuse a child. Well, the answer is because of sin. And if I could be so bold as to say, if they knew what the reason was, they would know what the solution is. But because they don't know the reason, they don't know the solution. Jesus Christ is telling us today, look, I am the Savior, I am the solution. And he says, you should believe in me because I am the one who will pay for your sins. There is no other one. Many ideas have been put forward to help mankind, to change mankind. None of them have worked. They're good ideas, they're good deeds, but Christ says, look, I am the Savior I am the only one, and that makes belief in me an urgent matter. Secondly, he says something else about urgency. Your belief in me is urgent because it is the path to eternal life. First of all, he says, I am the one who's going to provide salvation. Now he says, you need to believe because that is the only way you can get the benefit of what I have done. He talks here, first of all, about himself dying and producing fruit through his death, and he goes right on to talking about his followers. Look at verse 25. He says, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. He says something here that runs absolutely culture to counter to our American culture today. He says it is a good thing to hate your life. The whole tone of the American helping uh, occupations is to get people to love their life. I watched uh, My Name is Earl. I got one of those DVRs now. I can record a show and watch it anytime, you know. So... Turned on, my name is Earl. Well, Earl's in prison. And you know what the moral of the story was for Earl? 
Earl had to learn to be himself. And if he would just be himself, prison would be okay. And we snicker about that, but that is the message in our society today about living your life. Just be yourself. You're just fine. Just love yourself. Just be who you are. The problem comes when you try to be somebody else. We talk about that with homosexuality. The homosexual ideology, I would call it mythology, but the ideology is if you will just come out of the closet and be who you are, you're going to be happy. I had a call, um, for those of you that are new in our church, I'm a, I'm a biblical counselor and I'm part of a national network and I got a call from somebody in a church fairly far away and they said, I got, I got a question for you. I got a person here who's had a sex change operation. They were a boy, now they're a girl, man, now a woman. Came to Christ this year. And they want to tell the whole church what's happened to them And as I questioned this person, they wanted to tell the whole church so that everybody would come around and say, that's great, good for you. Rather than saying, you know what? I made a mistake. God made me perfect. He knew me in my mother's womb. See, people think today if we would just stop telling them they need to change and just pat them on the back, everything will be fine. And Jesus says, no way. He says there is a perspective in which you need to hate your life. Now, I don't say that Jesus is teaching us here to go around going, I'm terrible, I'm bad, I hate everything. Absolutely not. What he's talking about here is something like this. Spiritual self-love is the belief that the natural condition of my soul is good and should be maintained. That is what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about loving every single thing in your life, but it's looking inside and saying, I'm good enough just like I am. I don't need to change. I don't need to believe in Jesus. I think this uh, idea is summarized well in Romans chapter 1. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, they not only do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. That is the extreme application of self-love. When I go to somebody and say, you are just right like you are. I so badly wanted to get up at this seminar this last week. Now, now don't get me wrong, especially if you're new here. I'm, I'm way against any kind of sexual sin including sexual abuse of children. I am, I am you know, if you, have, you, if you don't believe it, you just talk to somebody that's been around here a while. I'm way against it. But what I wanted to stand up and say is, why is that wrong? Why is it wrong for the North American Man, Man-Boy Love Association to exist and to say, oh, we ought to love boys and it's perfectly natural and they've done it for years. Why is that wrong? If, if my goal there was to witness, that's what I would have done in front of those couple hundred people. Because they would have just come after me. And I would have said, why is it wrong to murder? Whoa, it's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because we have voted 
that it is wrong. Are you telling me that's the whole basis of morality, whatever we vote in? Well, then why can't I vote in and say abortion is wrong? Well, see, the problem with sin in our society is moral ambiguity. Moral ambiguity means we've pronounced some things bad and some things okay, but these things over here are still things that God says are wrong. And people want to stand up in our society and say, my soul is just right the way it is. There's nothing wrong with my soul. Don't you tell me there's something wrong with me. That is the criticism about us, Christians. We're too darn narrow. The problem is, if people could just understand, I have applied the same thing to my soul that I want to apply to their soul. I don't get to love my life any more than they get to love theirs. Jesus said, if you love your life, you will love it all the way to hell. That's what he said. If you look in your soul and say, my soul is good enough just like it is, and if you fail to believe in Christ as your Savior, you will love it all the way to hell. What does God say about the natural condition of our soul? Do you despise the riches of God's goodness, forbearance, long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God should lead you to repent or to change your mind, your thoughts, your actions, your beliefs, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent or unchanging heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of righteous judgment of God. I don't like telling people they aren't good enough. I do not enjoy that. But I have to because that's what God says. He says, I'm not good enough. He says, if I'm going to hang on to my soul and its present unsaved condition, I'm going to hang on to it all the way to hell. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life will keep it. What does it mean to hate your life? Spiritual self-hatred is the recognition that because my soul is sinful, I must let go of all self-direction and self-confidence and embrace God's cure for my soul. Now, especially if you're new here today, make, make no mistake, I don't believe the godly life is, is one where we cower and, and we have no confidence, but all of, all of the things that we are come from God. We are either self-generated or God-generated. Spiritual self-hatred is when I look in my soul and I go, my soul is sinful. What am I going to do? And Christ comes along and he says, I know. I will change your life. I will save your soul. I will scrub it clean. I will give you a new life of mine in place of it. And then we can look in the mirror and go, man, I'm clean. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. He who hates his life, will keep it for eternal life. Jesus put it this way in Luke. Then he answered them all, if anyone desires to f come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In 1 John, he puts it this way, if we say that we have no sin, and this really is the issue here in terms of self-love. As an unbeliever, 
If you're an unbeliever here today and you're saying, I have no sin, then you're deceiving yourself. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But, on the other hand, if we will confess, and that word means to agree with God, literally to agree with God, to admit that we're sinners. Yes, I'm a sinner. If I do that, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Make no mistake, friend, if you want to call yourself a follower of God, you have to deal with this. There are a lot of churches that don't talk about sin because it's a downer. It hurts people's feelings. I understand that. I don't like to find out I've done something wrong. But God says, if you're going to say that sin is not an issue, you're making God a liar. So don't come to worship God and not accept his truth. We have to let go of ourselves. We have to let go of our self-love and our unsaved condition and embrace God and what he wants for us. We have to let go of our life and in the end we get it back in eternity, if you will. We get it back now, but we also get it in eternity. Your belief in me is urgent because I am the source of eternal life. Your belief in me is urgent because it is the path. Belief is the only path to eternal life. And thirdly, your belief in me is urgent because I bring judgment. Look at verse 27. We get a little glimpse into the heart of Jesus Christ. My soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me or take me out of this that I'm about to go through? But for this purpose I came. So I'm going to say, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven came and said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by heard it and said it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken. Jesus said, this voice did not come because of me, but because of you. Now is the judgment of this world. The death of Christ gives him the right to judge humanity. And I believe God gave that voice from heaven to give uh, support to what Jesus was saying. He says here, this voice isn't for me. I didn't need to hear an audible word from God, but you needed to hear an audible word from God because what I'm telling you is right now, I'm about to enter into a time which will also bring judgment. It will bring salvation, but it also brings judgment. John 5 says this, For the Father judges no one, but he has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Jesus said, the fact that I am now going on to finish my mission of, of uh, being persecuted uh, physically and then suffering and dying and being raised again, he said, because of this glorification that's going to happen, 
I have the right to bring judgment, and I am bringing judgment. Every man, every woman, every child will stand before the crucified Christ either as a penitent sinner to receive pardon or else to face him as the judge to hear his doom pronounced, one author wrote. God has the right to judge us based on the death of Christ. This judgment also comes now against Satan. The death of Christ seals the judgment against Satan. Look at verse 31 again. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That's kind of a cryptic verse that if you didn't know the rest of Scripture would seem a little bit hard. But it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, God punished them, but he also gave them a promise. And here it is. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Satan had possessed, if you will, the form of a serpent and talked to Eve through, through what we might call a reptile today. So to the serpent, God said, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put hatred between you and the woman Between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first indication that there is a, what we have called in theology, the battle of the ages between Satan and Christ. And God says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to reach up and hit him on the heel and he's going to reach down and crush your head. When did that happen? Well, according to this scripture in John, it happened when Christ died on the cross. When Christ died on the cross, he, he signed the execution statement on Satan. If we were to study the whole of scripture, we would understand that Satan was a created angel. And he rose up in pride against God. And God said, no, you will not take my place. You're a created being. And so he was, the, the judgment was pronounced. And then time goes on, and when it comes to the cross, the execution order is signed. But Satan still isn't bound, and he still isn't punished until the end of the age when he is cast into hell, which Jesus said was prepared for him. God didn't create hell for human beings. Uh, If I could put it this way, it was an afterthought. In other words, he created it for Satan, who sinned in eternity past. But when mankind fell, he says, you're going to spend eternity there as well if you don't come to faith in me. This act of Christ, the glorification, the death, burial, resurrection, made it possible to seal the judgment against Satan. When Christ died, sin The debt of sin was paid to God. When Christ rose from the dead, the power of sin was conquered. When Christ was exalted to the right hand of God, the end of Satan's rule in our world was declared. Now, again, Satan still is free. The judgment has not been executed. It has been signed, but not executed until the end of the age. The death of Christ makes the sentence over Satan definite. Jesus is the king of the universe. He is not someone to be trifled with. I think that's the essence of what he says here. He says, look, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to save people, but judgment will come on the world and on Satan. You need to understand that. 
your belief in me is urgent because I bring judgment. And fourthly, your belief in me is urgent because your opportunity is limited. I want to be very careful in what I say here so I don't give a wrong impression. But for these people, Jesus seems to talk about a limited opportunity. And in talking about this, look what he says. Verse 32. If I am lifted up from the earth... I will draw all peoples to myself. Now, those words in Greek mean exactly what they say in English. Uh, It's no different in the original text, but it's interpreted by the next verses. Verse 33, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him and said, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, and how can you say the Son of Man will be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? When Jesus said the Son of Man, talking about himself, must be lifted up, they knew immediately he was talking about death on the cross. We know that they know that from their response. Because they come back to him and say, look, we've been studying the Old Testament, and the Old Testament talks about this Messiah, this Savior to come, who is also called the Son of Man in the book of Daniel. And we know that he is going to live forever. They knew verses like this from Psalm 89, my covenant I will not break nor alter the word that I have gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. There was this and in, in, in other scriptures where they clearly knew that they're thinking, no, you can't, if you're the Messiah, you can't die. They had a misconception. Well, they had a misconception because they forgot this verse from Daniel 9, from the Old Testament. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. And we don't have time to go into all the details there, but clearly God said, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to have to die. And they didn't understand that. But again, what's interesting is how Jesus answers this. Um, The people said... Verse 34, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, and how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Now, listen as I read verse 34 and answer this question. Does Jesus answer them directly? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Does he answer their question? Does he quote Daniel chapter 9 and say, hey, you folks got it wrong? No, he doesn't. What he does instead is he says, he says, seize the opportunity. He says, look, folks, I'm done explaining. I've been explaining for three years. Seize the opportunity. He says, believe while the light is here. Walk in the light while you have the light so that the darkness doesn't overtake you. Now, what is the time limit on the opportunity that God gives people to believe in Jesus Christ? Does anybody know the answer to that? Good, because I don't either. Except to say a couple of things. Somehow, To these people, Jesus says, look, I'm going to be out of here. You don't quite understand it yet, but I'm going to be physically gone from here. You should believe now while the light is still here with you. 
Why does he make that so urgent? Well, I think he makes it urgent for a couple of reasons. And one of them, well, both of them affect us today. And the first one is what I'd like to call hardening of the harteries. I did not, I did not coin that phrase. I don't know who, but somebody did. You know, hardening of the arteries, your arteries get hard. Your arteries actually have to expand and contract and all that thing. And, and when they get old and brittle, they get hard and they can't do their thing. And you can have medical problems. I, I would defer to define what those problems are to somebody who's an expert. But, but uh, spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, your heart can get hard. You can hear the gospel, you can be around Christian truth, and, and you say, and if you actively resist, it's like what we read in Romans 1. It says, these people chose to push God out of their thinking. And so what did God do to them? He said, you want to be free? You're free. Do you know what it means to be free from the work of God? That means to be on a greased path to hell. Because God is at work in us, pulling us to himself. He's saying, come on, believe in me. And, and if you're here today and you've never believed in Christ, God caused you to be here. And he's pulling you toward himself saying, come on, believe. Look at the truth. And if you're going, no, 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 God may just let go of the rope. Now, God doesn't tell me when he does that. But Romans chapter 1 tells me that he does do that. And that you can resist God too long. And you can push back so long that God will say, be free. And the results of that will not be good in your life. About three months ago, a fellow came into my office. I mentioned him in a sermon a few weeks ago, a month or two ago. Came into my office, crying his eyes out over the turmoil in his life. Never met him before. Not a church-going guy. He's just looking for some help, you know. We talked and talked about how the Lord could change his situation. And, uh, he, you know, he was guardedly open, but, no, I'm not ready to make a decision for the Lord today. And he came to church. We talked on the phone. He came to church came to church the next week. I gave him a Bible. He said, I, don't, I got a Bible somewhere. I don't even know where it is. I gave him a Bible. If you'd like a Bible today, I'll give you one. Take that one in the pew. I know it says don't steal it from the church, but steal it. <laughs> I got more. I gave him a Bible. I gave him a Bible study on how to know the Lord. And about a month later, he hanged himself. Now, I don't believe that suicide is you know, the sin that will keep you from heaven. I don't believe that. But I don't believe a brand new believer in Christ would think of that. Now, all I'm saying, folks, is God, God called out to him. And he said, no. I don't know when that day comes in your life. I don't. And, I, and I'm not trying to, well, maybe I am trying to scare you into heaven. I'm trying to plead with you and say, don't push back against Christ. Don't push back against God. Jesus said, seize the opportunity. Let go of your life. If you're here and you've not accepted Christ, I know that you're, there's a struggle going on in your soul right now. And it's that struggle of self-love or God-love. And you've got to let go. 
You've got to seize the opportunity. And he says you've got to believe in the light. He doesn't say understand every single fine point of theology to the extent that your questions are perfectly answered and then believe in Christ. He didn't answer the specific question they asked him, even though it's answered in the Bible. He said, believe. This principle of laying down your life, of not loving your soul as it is, also extends to us Christians. It extends to us because as we examine our life daily, we have to say whatever is of me has to be laid down and whatever is of Christ needs to be picked up. Have you believed in the light? I urge you to do that today. Worship team is going to come and we're going to sing that song that was new to you today, The Wonderful Cross. As we think about the message of Christ, that, uh, that song just embodies this scripture so well. We want to think about ourselves and our faith in Christ. And if you have a question about any of this, you have a disagreement about any of this, I would love to visit with you after church today. We'd love to have you stay and come to the welcome room, have some refreshments, sit and visit. Ask your questions. Let's open the word. Let's pray together. Let's let go of ourselves and embrace God.